and follow along in the book of Mark. Uh, as it happens, our passage today is about a mother. So uh, God's providence, here we are. Uh, let me read our passage for us, uh, Mark seven twenty four to 30, before we begin today. Hear the word of God. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. The word of God, let's pray for his help as we look into these words. Father, uh, do give us wisdom and insight May your spirit awaken our minds and open our eyes that we could see the truth you have for us in these verses. Help us to regard this as nothing less than your very words that you uh, spoke through Mark. Uh, Father, I pray that we would be attentive to your words, that they would sink in deeply, and that you would tr uh, transform us, Lord, through your grace. Help us now. Help me as I preach this morning. Strengthen my voice and my mind. We ask all these things through Jesus, your Son. Amen. There's a church in Bethlehem that claims to be built over the very spot where Jesus was born. It's called the Church of the Nativity. Uh, the entrance used to be much larger than you see here can see the, the previous outline of the entrance going up here, but it was reduced to this size. It's about two feet wide by four feet tall, and it was made that small to prevent uh, raiders in the medieval times from uh, riding their horses into the church and disrupting the worship service. This door is now known and referred to as the Door of Humility. Because anyone entering must adopt a humble posture like this gentleman and stoop low to enter it. We find a posture similar to this in our passage this morning. We find this humble and proper posture, uh, not from the twelve, not from any of Jesus' other followers, not from the Jewish people of Galilee. We see this proper posture from a Gentile woman that is non-Jewish uh, in the Gentile region of Tyre. She's probably the last person we would expect to show us how we should approach Jesus Christ. So what does this woman have to say to us, this mother? How should we approach Christ What's the proper posture for someone who comes to Christ for deliverance? 
That's the question we want to answer this morning. And we'll see the answer as we examine the three elements of our passage today. We'll discover uh, the proper posture before Christ through three elements in verses 24 through 30. So the first element that we find is the departure. Jesus departs Galilee uh, for the Gentile region of Tyre and Sidon, where he hopes to escape notice. And let me point out two things about this departure. First of all, it's a departure from Gennesaret, one of the villages in Galilee. Look at verse 24 with me. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. The from there refers uh, to uh, this village right here, Gennesaret. You remember when Jesus walked on the water, um, they were trying to get here, his disciples were, and the boat was blown off course and they wound up landing at Gennesaret. Well, Jesus uh, and uh, the twelve as well depart from here and travel about 20 miles to the northwest to this uh, city of Tyre. Sidon is further up, right about here on the ceiling tile. Um, uh, he, this is where uh, he and the twelve are headed. This is only the second time in Mark. Now, I don't know if you're much for, I don't know, I don't want this to feel like English class, but thematic development. So indulge me for a minute. This is only the second time that Jesus has left Galilee uh, in Mark's gospel. Uh, the first time was back in chapter 5, and you might remember back when he and the disciples crossed another rough boat ride uh, uh, over to this region here, and he heals a, a demon, not heals, but he frees a, a demon-possessed man. Now for a second time, Jesus leaves Galilee, a predominantly Jewish area, this uh, green area uh, indicates that it's predominantly Jewish. He leaves this predominantly Jewish area for this area, which is predominantly made up of Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And we'll see Jesus in Gentile regions through most of chapter 8. Uh, so what, why is that important? I'm suggesting that it is. Why is it significant to see Jesus traveling through these Gentile regions? It's, it's important because most Jews believe that contact with Gentiles made them unclean or unholy. It's not because the Gentiles had eaten some of the unclean foods. Remember, the Lord gave Israel foods that uh, they were not to eat. Uh, and, and so eating those foods made them unclean, unholy. No, no, it's not because the Gentiles ate unclean food. It, they were unclean, they believed, the Jews believed, by nature, simply because they were Gentiles. And you might remember if a Jewish person was traveling through a Gentile region, he would stop at the border of Israel and shake the dust off his feet so he didn't contaminate Israel with Gentile dust. So because Gentiles were considered unclean, there was no social contact between Jewish people and non-Jewish people. I'm not trying to be flippant when I say this, but the only thing I think of that, that comes close to this um, is uh, back in elementary school, uh, we played a game called cooties. And... Uh, 
you know, we would shout out somebody's got cooties and, and the object was for that person to tag someone else and then the other person had cooties. Well, it's, it's you know, it's a stretch, I know, but it's along those lines. Uh, the point is, it, it happened by touch. And Jesus is associating with these so-called unclean people. The last week, we heard Jesus declare that all foods were clean. Jesus said that what makes a person unclean or unholy was not the food that he put in his stomach, but what came out of his heart. He declared all foods clean, and he removed the social barrier between Jew and Gentile, paving the way for Jew and Gentile to form one new community. Now, you know, we sit here in 2023, and that's kind of nothing to us. It's no big deal. But there's no, practically no way we can imagine how massive a change this is to, to the Jews. That Gentiles were included in the people of God. That the people who were unholy and that they avoided at all costs would now become part of the people of God. They had a great, uh, a very difficult time accepting Gentiles into the church. But this is what God intended, that Jew and Gentile would form one new community. And Paul wrote about it. And let me just read a portion of what Paul said about this new community. It's uh, in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, verses 11 and following. I find Ephesians in my Bible. Here's what it says. And, and this too is no less shocking. Uh, imagine a Jewish person hearing Paul say this. It would have, pardon the, the phrase, freaked them out. Uh, so Paul's writing in Ephesians 2.11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, in your bodies, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that is Jewish people, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And many people, Jewish people at that point would say, Amen. <laughs> but now, in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, that is Jew and Gentile, uh, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances which we read about last week, declaring all foods clean, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, Jews, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
So then, you, you Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Can you imagine a Gentile hearing this? What? Could you imagine, uh, excuse me, can you imagine a Jewish person hearing this? Uh, and, and then, by contrast, imagine a, a Gentile hearing this. I am a part of the people of God. I who was once hated. That's why this journey is so important. Going outside of Galilee to a Gentile region. And we'll see Jesus uh, in this region uh, again for most of chapter 8. Well, it's a departure from Gennesaret to begin with. It's a departure from the crowd too. We see Jesus wants to get away from the crowds and verse 24 goes on to say, And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. The large crowds that followed uh, Jesus gave him no peace, and he could hardly eat a meal at one point, you recall that. Um, but wanting to escape the crowd, also probably wanting to get away from the Pharisees and further conflict. I mean, there's no way Pharisees would go into Gentile countries, so he was safe from Pharisees there. Uh, and he leaves for Tyre and Sidon. But this attempt to get away is unsuccessful. His fame has preceded him. Word of his rival quickly spread with the result that he could not be hidden or escape notice. So it's a departure from the village of Gennesaret, but it's also here we see a departure from the crowd. This is the first element in our, in our uh, account today, that Jesus uh, departs, this departure, and it's a departure from Gennesaret as well as the crowds. We, we see a second element here. Uh, not first the departure, but then we see the desperation. And the desperation comes from the woman in question. This Gentile woman with a daughter who is demon-possessed. We see her desperation in this part through th three things. We see her desperation through her posture. Uh, her posture just is a giveaway. Look at verse 25 in your Bible. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. So to begin with, Mark tells us that just as soon as she got word of Jesus, she acted immediately. This is, this is the first indication that she's a desperate woman. There's no time to lose. And we find the reason for her desperation, for her hurry uh, in the next line. Uh, an unclean spirit, uh, uh, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit. Uh, little daughter here, that phrase could indicate that she was a very young girl, a child. Uh, it could also be a term of affection and could say, dear daughter, either way, something very near and dear to this woman is being threatened by an unclean spirit. A couple chapters ahead, in chapter 9, Mark describes uh, what an unclean spirit did to a boy. Threw him to the ground, um, gave him convulsions, 
made him grind his teeth and foam at the mouth. And it's possible that something similar to that is, is occurring to this woman's daughter. Uh, this unclean spirit could be injuring her daughter, even maiming her. And so there is no time to lose. She must get to Christ. So in her desperation, she heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. She, she kneels at the feet of Christ, perhaps even falling flat on her face before the Lord. This is a position of complete humility and utter submission uh, before a superior. She's at the end of herself and has nowhere else to turn. Jesus was her last hope. So we see this desperation come through in her posture here. But the second thing that reveals how desperate she is, is her privilege. Uh, she came from a privileged position. Look at verse 26. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. The word Gentile is actually the word Greek. Uh, Mark tells us that she was a Greek woman. She came from Greek culture. Uh, she came from a region that Alexander the Great had conquered and had brought Greek culture to. She probably spoke Greek uh, and not Aramaic, which was the language that Jesus and his men would have spoken. And Mark says, too, that she's a Syrophoenician, and the place where she was born had previously been part of the Syrian and Phoenician cultures. All to say, she was not Jewish. <laughs> Definitely not Jewish. It's also likely that she was part of a wealthy and privileged class of people. Galileans, uh, there was no love loss between Galilee and Tyre. This is a Smaller map, but I just want to show you the areas here. Um, Tyre got much of their food supplies from the region of Galilee. Uh, they bought their food from Galilee. So much so that there are times when Tyre was well stocked and the people of Galilee went hungry. So, um, uh, in fact, a Jewish historian, uh, Josephus, would later call the people of Tyre our bitterest enemies. And one Bible scholar puts it this way, this, this woman is therefore not just a Gentile, but a member of a resented class of privileged enemies. And yet for her wealth, what do we see her doing? She falls down at the feet of Jesus. Her, her money could have gotten her practically everything or anything she wanted in life, but her money could not deliver her precious daughter from demon possession. And in spite of her wealth, in spite of her position, she is driven to her knees before Christ, the last and best hope of her daughter. So her... her um, her privilege, we see her desperation in her privileged position. In spite of her privileged station in life, she falls to her knees before Christ. And we see desperation through one more thing in these verses, and that's her petition, her, her plea before Christ. Uh, she persistently begs Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. Uh, verse 26 in the middle goes on to say, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. 
uh, the verb tense of that word, begged, refers to ongoing action. She kept on begging him, is what the idea is. Uh, Matthew also tells, uh, records this account in his gospel. And listen to what Matthew has to say here. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. Gives us the sense that she didn't just ask once. She is, is pleading and begging before Christ. It's as if they're saying, Lord, she's, she's driving us crazy. Would you please get rid of her? She is like that judge we read about. Uh, just a short time ago in Luke 18, uh, in our scripture reading, the judge, after this persistent widow uh, continues to uh, get after him, the judge finally says, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. That is the kind of thing that's going on here. Uh, she is persistent to the point of irritation. Uh, and this reveals her desperation. She persistently begs Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. Well, one more element in this passage I want to point out to you. Uh, we've seen uh, the departure. We've seen the desperation from this uh, mother, this desperate Gentile mother, and the third thing that we see is the deliverance that Christ gives her. Uh, she acknowledge, acknowledges her undeserving position and asks for a mere crumb from Jesus. Uh, there are three things I want to mention about this deliverance to you. Uh, the first thing that we'll see is a stumbling block. Jesus puts an obstacle before this woman. Look at verse 27. This is, this is kind of strange. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What? Those are shocking words. I mean, that doesn't sound like Jesus at all. Matthew tells us that he, he was quiet for the longest time and didn't say anything. But this? Let the children be fed first, meaning let the children of Israel eat their fill and be satisfied, and then it will be the Gentiles' turn to eat. That's the essence of what Jesus is telling her. It's really the same order that Paul describes in Romans. Listen to what Paul says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And this is kind of the way Paul operated when he came into a new city. He would, he would go to the synagogue first, and he would share the good news about Christ there until they drove him out, and then he would go to the uh, Gentile population who readily accepted uh, most of them readily accepted. But it's what Jesus says after this. I mean, we understand that Israel, the children of God uh, from the Old Testament, and then Gentiles, and that's not too bad, but what he goes on to say next is, is what people find so offensive. 
uh, in the second half of the verse, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, if you're aware of how they felt about dogs in the New Testament, it's not the way you feel about your dog and the way I feel about my dog. Most dogs of this era were feral dogs. Uh, they were scavengers. And they would roam through villages eating garbage, um, actually kind of more like raccoons than, than dogs in our mind. Um, they would eat the garbage. Sometimes they would even eat corpses. And the Jews treated these, un treated these Gentiles like these unclean animals. Jews referred to the Gentiles as dogs. Now there's some of the sting of his words taken out of it because the word Jesus uses really is not referring to the dogs out in the street, these mongrels, these scavengers. Jesus uses a word, uh, little dogs, dogs of the house, and not these dogs of the yard. But even so, he's still referring to Gentiles as dogs. And R.C. Sproul points out that there are some who actually believe Jesus sinned against this woman by referring to her this way. Uh, we can't go that far, of course, because if we believe that Jesus sinned against her, then he was not the sinless Son of God and could not have paid for our sins on the cross. So we have to, we have to explain these scandalous words, these harsh words, these offensive words. What is the Lord doing here by comparing Gentiles to house pets? He's putting a stumbling block in her way. And this is what Jesus did frequently, if you'll think for a minute with me. We heard him last week call the Pharisees hypocrites up in verse 6. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites? And elsewhere, he calls the Pharisees and Sadducees a brood of vipers. As if to say, you guys are nothing but a, but a, but a bunch of snakes. In other places, he calls them whitewashed tombs. As if to tell them, you look good on the outside, but you inside, you're full of death. Uh, Jesus did the same kind of thing with the crowd that was listening to him in Luke 11. He calls them an evil generation. It's not exactly winsome speech we're talking about. Why did Christ deliberately say these offensive and scandalous things? He says them to assault our pride. He says these things to confront the idea that deep down, we really do have something to bring. That somehow deep within, we're worthy. That we deserve salvation. That he would be lucky to get us on his team. He says these things, offensive and scandalous things, to confront our pride. I want to suggest that that might be what you think of yourself. You know, I, I can say this, uh, so I'll just 
tell you my pedigree and why I think it's good that God has me on his team. I grew up in a Christian home. I was a nice kid. I was the son of a pastor, for crying out loud. Wouldn't it be awesome for God to put me on his team? I mean, didn't I deserve it? Growing up in a home like that? Well, if you truly knew me, you would say not a snowball's chance in the hotter regions of the earth. <laughs> Could you be thinking anything remotely? I mean, after all you've done for him? You, you certainly got something to bring, right? Listen to the, the way this man summed it up. No one likes being called hypocrites, an evil generation, brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs, foxes, or dogs. Our pride keeps, kicks in and keeps us from ever asking for help again. We will turn to gods of our own making who will not offend us because we convince ourselves that we are special and truly worthy of God's grace and help. Only when we are truly desperate are we willing to do anything it takes, including humbling ourselves to find God's help. Boy, that's hard. But this is just what she does. This is the very thing this desperate mother goes on to do. The third thing that shows, uh, or the second thing that I want to mention to you in this deliverance is her submission. She humbles herself before the Lord. Notice verse 28, but she answered him, yes, Lord. Oh, can you, she's, she's agreeing. But she answered, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And so if you've been with us through Mark, I want you to notice first that this woman actually understands the parable Jesus used. She gets it. Unlike the 12, it, sometimes it seems like they don't understand anything. This woman immediately grasped the point he's making. In fact, her understanding is really quite remarkable. Grasping what Jesus meant, she could respond with pride and walk away. I mean, I'm, I'm a wealthy woman. I come from position. Who do you think you are referring to me and my people as dogs? I don't need your help. Or she could humble herself and acknowledge the truth that she didn't deserve special treatment and come as a beggar before God for, for his grace. And this is what she does. She acknowledges that the children of Israel have priority over her. She even accepts that Jesus has referred to her as a household pet. But in her submission to Jesus, she points out that even Gentiles can expect to enjoy the blessings of the Messiah. Even the Gentiles will get something too. Uh, shows remarkable insight into, into this woman. She's thinking along the lines of, of God's promise to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and, 
And him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so she, she really dares to point out to Jesus, yes, that's true. But even Gentiles are going to receive blessings from the Messiah. It's really incredible. She's not asking for a full course meal. She just wants a little crumb of, of his power for a little dog. Listen to Ken Hughes, Pastor Ken Hughes, uh, kind of sum this up. The woman was light years away from supposing that she merited any help from God. She knew she was a dog. She knew there was no merit in her that would win, win Christ's help. She was a Gentile, not a child of the household. The bottom line is she depended upon Christ's goodness and not her own. It was all of grace. And this submission that she displays for us, this willingness uh, to humble herself, uh, is a key requirement for becoming, for becoming one of Jesus' disciples. Yeah, I'm speaking to you now. The same submission is a requirement for anyone to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. God's word tells us in uh, Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the, those who are desperate for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And a little later in Matthew, also blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And again, back to our scripture reading this morning, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child shall not enter it. Ken Hughes comments, every child born into the world is absolutely, completely, totally, actual, actually helpless. And so it is with every child who's born into the kingdom of God, children of the kingdom, enter it helpless. There's a hymn writer who wrote this into the song Rock of Ages. Um, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cr thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Then there's this familiar quote from Jonathan Edwards. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. It's true. And that might come across as very offensive to you. You can't bring anything to Jesus except your sin. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So have you come to Christ this way? Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Oh, you see this this theme throughout the New Testament and even the Old Testament. Uh, consider what Paul said to the, to the church in Corinth. 
Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that none of us could stand before him and make our little cock-a-doodle-doo of what we did to earn our salvation. Consider uh, this from our scripture reading as well. The rich, uh, uh, the, uh, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Here's the tax collector. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is what she shows us. This is what this woman reveals to us. The way we approach Christ for salvation. We can't bring him a thing. We come falling on our face before him. Lord, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless. Look to thee for grace. And from her submission, we go on to see the Lord's salvation given to her and her daughter. Instead of giving her a crumb, he gives her a feast. And notice the reason for her deliverance. Look in verse 29. And he said to her, for this statement, that is what she just said in verse 28. For these words, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Matthew adds these words in his account. Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And then note the result in verse 30. She went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. She doesn't plead with Jesus to accompany her just in case. She trusts him and takes him at his word. And of course, his word proves true. And she finds her precious daughter, her dear daughter, just as Jesus said he would. No longer throwing herself on the ground. No longer maiming herself. She's been delivered. So this third thing is uh, the deliverance that we find. The third element and we've seen Christ throw up a stumbling block. We've seen her submission, and finally, the salvation Jesus gives her. What does she have to say to us? What is the proper posture to approach Christ? What's the, what's the proper way to come to Christ uh, for someone who comes to him for deliverance? She reveals that there's nothing in us that makes us deserving of, of his grace. That, that's actually just such an oxymoron. Grace is undeserved favor. And so therefore you can do nothing to deserve it. She shows us that we must come to Christ as beggars, relying on nothing but his grace. 
She demonstrates we bring nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So let me ask you just one more time this morning. Have you come to Christ like this? Have you laid yourself out before him and say, Jesus, I have nothing to bring. And I need you to save me. Give me a new heart to believe. Have you come to Christ like that? If you're not sure, uh, I would love to talk to you following the service. I'll be right down front here. Talk to any one of the elders as well. Some of you have come to Christ just that way. And so I say to you, friend, don't remove the stumbling block of the gospel. Christ put it there. Don't take it away from those around you. Don't tell them they don't have to bring nothing in their hand. Don't tell them that there's, uh, there's anything they can do because there's nothing they can do, just like it was with you. So, friend, when you share the good news about Jesus and his payment for sin, don't take away the stumbling block. Because Christ says they must turn from their sin to trust in him. Don't remove the stumbling block. Jesus is using it to assault their pride. Doesn't matter how you grew up. Doesn't matter how wealthy you are. Uh uh. None of it matters before Christ. We all come as beggars looking for crumbs from the table. Let me pray as we conclude. Thank you, Father, for this account of this Gentile woman, this pagan woman, who was desperate enough to fall before Jesus, your son, and plead for deliverance. You assault our pride in every way, Lord Jesus. If anyone here today has not fallen on their knees before you, I pray that you'd continue to assault their pride and bring them to yourself. And thank you, Savior, that when we come to you this way, Oh, you pour out your grace upon us. You are ready and willing to save us. Give us new hearts that we may believe and trust in your payment for sin on the cross. Oh, Lord, and please use us to tell the people around us the good news about Jesus and his payment for sin. But let us be cautious not to make the gospel easy for them. Savior, let us not mess with the stumbling block that you've put there. Strengthen us with your grace to do these things. Savior, I ask in your name. Amen. I'm going to ask the men who are going to help me with communion to come forward.